So hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacy McKenna and I will be moderating this discussion. Today we have the Jewish News Syndicate's Editor-in-Chief, Mr. Jonathan Tobin, here to speak on understanding Israel's deep changes in the electoral cycle. Mr. Tobin will speak for roughly five minutes on the topic, then, are, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. If you have any comments or questions not related to the topic, please use the chat box to message me directly. And now I will turn it over to Mr. Jonathan Tobin. Thank you, Stacy, And um, hello to everybody out there. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us on this webinar. Um, I've been asked to speak about the hidden agenda in Israeli politics and from the latest election. Now, when we think of Israeli politics and what's been going on, we think of dissension and division and tremendous dissent and a lack of agreement about anything. And on some great issues, that's entirely true. After all, they've just had three elections, no decisive majority from any of them. It's an ongoing, really intractable argument about how to form an Israeli government. But when I speak of a hidden agenda, of a real consensus, there actually is one. Because what has been at stake in the last three Israeli elections hasn't been the issue that most of us, especially here in the United States, think of as the question that divides Israelis. We, after all, many of us anyway, tend to think of Israel as still divided down the middle between left and right, between supporters of an Oslo process, peace process, and two-state solution, and opponents on the right. And that was once true. Israel was, for a long time, rather evenly divided about the peace process, but no longer. And in fact, it hasn't been that way for a very long time, even though that hasn't been the way it's often covered in the American press. In fact, not since the Second Intifada, which literally, not figuratively, but literally blew up the idea that land for peace could work because what Israelis got was not land for peace, but land for terror. That ended it. It, it was blown up by the Second Intifada. And anyone who didn't get that message was, had it further confirmed in 2005 when Ariel Sharon withdrew every soldier, settler, and settlement from Gaza. And instead of getting an incubator for peace, got a terrorist state and an independent Palestinian state in all but name ruled by Hamas. Um, that changed the situation in Israel, changed the political dimension. So what we've seen over the last 15 years, and it's grown, is a consensus forming in Israel on the big questions of land for peace and what is the future of the peace process. And in fact, there is a consensus that stretches from the moderate left through the center to the right, which realizes that there is no Palestinian peace partner of any kind, not the moderates of Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, and not the so-called extremists of Hamas and Gaza. They share uh, a consensus of their own that there is no peace, that there is no willingness to accept a Palestinian state, which they've been offered several times. This has been illustrated in Israel's political arguments because after all, yes, there is no majority for a government in Israel, but the blue and white party led by former general, IDF general uh, Benny Gantz ran not as an opponent of Netanyahu's policies on the peace process, but as agreeing with them. 
Gantz tried to run to the right of Netanyahu wherever possible in all three elections. He, after all, said he criticized Echud Olmert for his concessions in 2008. He vowed he would annex the Jordan Valley. He said he wouldn't get rid of settlements. Um, he endorsed the Trump peace plan. Um, there was no room. He tried, just as Obama tried to have more daylight between, President Obama tried to have more daylight between the U.S. and Israel, Gantz's policy was no daylight between himself and Netanyahu on security issues. And that's why the blue and white has been able to compete so successfully with Likud in all three elections. And even the other party that has been driving the argument about whether to keep Netanyahu, Yisrael Batenu, led by Avigdor Lieberman, they are just as, as uh, strong in their opposition to a uh, two-state solution. Indeed, their number two is a supporter of the Middle East Forum's Victory Project, voted for. Um, there is a consensus, and even within the blue and white, there are members who are to the right of Netanyahu on the peace process. What they dissent with is whether that Netanyahu should stay in office. So there is real consensus within Israel, not about Netanyahu, but about the peace process. Now, why does this matter? It matters because here in the United States, most of American Jewry and many American politicians act like the last 20 years of history didn't happen. Um, many American Jews still think that Israel should withdraw from the West Bank willy-nilly. They think that the only solution is to withdraw from settlements. The only solution is to give up Israel's strategic assets, to repeat um, Sharon's Gaza experiment in the West Bank, which most Israelis think would not be just merely ill-advised, but really insane. And even more so, it's an issue because the Democrats, um, Vice, former Vice President Joe Biden, who obviously has a pretty fair chance of being elected president this year, if he gets back in, he's going to reinstitute Obama's, President Obama's policies. Um, all the Obama and Clinton alumni who failed time and again will be back at the State Department and the National Security Council trying again. So the point is, is not to tell you how to vote, but the message to Democrats is, listen to the American people, listen to the, to the Israeli people, listen to the consensus of the Israeli voters. They know something that many Americans haven't noticed about the lack of a peace process, a lack of a peace partner. We should listen, have some humility, have some understanding of the real consensus that exists within Israel. And if we do that, we'll have a much more sensible foreign policy and a much more sensible discussion about foreign policy. And I'll be happy to answer your questions. Thank you so much, Mr. Tobin. We have quite a few questions coming in. The first one is, if blue and white forms a government, how will the, the potentially changed makeup of the Israeli government alter the country's approach to Iran and its nuclear issues? Well, um, we're a long way from blue and white forming a government. Right now, the smart money is that they will form some kind of coalition with Likud and Netanyahu. Blue and White doesn't have the votes to create a, a government with the support of the Arab Joint Arab List, which is anti-Zionist parties. Many of their own members won't go along with that. But if there is, if there were a Blue and White government, if it was led by the leaders of Blue and White, I don't think there'd really be any difference. That's the point I've been making about a security issue like Iran. Gantz, uh, Moshe Ya'alon, uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, uh, even Yair Lapid are all, were all opposed to Obama's nuclear deal. I think they're all looking for the United States to continue to stay, stay strong. 
increase sanctions, hold Iran accountable. There is a consensus on Iran as well as the Palestinians. Fantastic. Uh, we have another one. Some governments differentiate between Hezbollah, the political party, and Hezbollah, the military wing. Is there any difference between the two, or is it the same entity? Well, they do have different wings. The same could be said of Hamas. We've heard a lot about the political wing of Hamas as opposed to the military wing of Hamas. But they all, they, you know, they all work for the same boss, Hezbollah. They work for Iran. They work for the Grand Ayatollah Khamenei. They work for the um, Al-Quds Force and the um, you know, Islam, you know, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So they may have different titles. They may have different jobs. You know, some, some, people, some of the Hezbollah people are in charge of running parts of uh, Lebanon. They're not in charge of the terrorism, but they're all part of the same terrorist entity. And to try and um, divide them up in that fashion is to play a game that undermines our ability to think seriously about them and to approach them in a manner which regards them as the threat that they are. It's like, you know, we have these, these arguments, you know, a generation ago about the Soviet Union, you know, the criminologists trying to get the moderates inside the Kremlin. And it was always, you know, it was, it was a game um, that scholars played and politicians played, but it led nowhere. Um, we understand that what Hezbollah is about, what their goals are, and we understand more importantly who they work for. And to take your eyes off that ball is to misunderstand the entire issue. Thank you. Is the joint Arab list political parties electoral gains dangerous to the state of Israel? Well, um, were the joint Arab list uh, to take power in Israel or be part of a government of Israel, I think that would be dangerous. Let's understand what the joint Arab list is. It's not just Israeli Arabs exercising their democratic right to vote and be represented, which is something we should all support. That is absolutely their right. These, the four parties that make up the joint Arab list are in this order. One is the Communist Party, which wants to dismantle the Jewish state. One is a secular Arab party, which basically wants to replicate the Palestinian authority in, instead of a Jewish state and have quote unquote, a state of its citizens, which means a Palestinian Arab secular dominated state, not a Jewish state. The third one is an Islamist party, which basically wants to replicate Hamas ruled Gaza in Israel instead of a Jewish state. And the fourth is a Balad, which doesn't so much want an independent Palestinian state. It wants the territory of Israel to be part of a pan-Arab state ruled by you know, a grand Arab uh, Republic. And, you know, it's basically Nazareth instead of a Jewish state. So yes, they all want to get rid of a Jewish state. So we don't, so anybody who cares about Zionism doesn't want them to have power. Um, it would be better for the, uh, for our Israeli Arabs to be supporting parties that were part of the democracy and really supporting uh, change within Israel to help the, help their voters, help those communities within the context as a, as a respected national minority within a Jewish majority state rather than supporting parties which want to destroy the Jewish state. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a dead end argument. Um, and while we certainly are, are in favor of them, you know, voting, having their rights, they, they have a right to be heard. But if that's what they want, it's not leading to anything good for them or for the state of Israel. Thank you. And this is a good one coming in. <laughs> we have a few of these. Uh, what are the odds of a fourth Israeli election? What will it look like? And what could bring on a fourth election? Well, if we were speaking 
sort of like a couple of days after the last election, uh, I would have said the odds of a fourth election aren't so bad. Uh, it might happen um, because the two sides really do have some intractable differences. As I've said, after each of these last three elections, it's a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces don't fit. Um, somebody's got to give, somebody's got to break campaign promises. Either the blue and white and uh, Yisrael Beitenu are going to have to sit with Netanyahu, accept him as prime minister, or they're going to go to the Arab list, try to form a minority government, which they don't have the votes for anyway. But there's another factor that has to intrude, you know, why we're doing this by uh, webinar rather than, say, appearing in person, is that with the coronavirus, everything, is, you know, all the bets are off. Um, we don't know when this current situation is going to end. Israel is basically under lockdown right now with God's help. Hopefully that will soon be lifted, we'll be free of this, but it's hard to talk about a fourth election. How could you organize a fourth election uh, under these circumstances? It would be in September if it happened again, but I don't think it could happen by September. It's not clear that the Knesset and the courts and everything are gonna be able to function. And after all, we don't know if, uh, what's, how, how we're gonna function here in the United States. So um, I think that puts all the more pressure on the parties to come up with some kind of compromise solution. Um, you know, the smart money says Netanyahu stays uh, as prime minister for now. And uh, because he's actually been doing a very able job leading um, the country, uh, taking it very, taking this situation very seriously. He's a natural, you know, sort of commander in chief war leader and that strengthened his hands in these negotiations. Great, thank you. Uh, where are the Palestinians in this whole picture? What is the future of Palestinian politics after Muhammad Abbas dies or resigns from office? Uh, we're contemplating the death of Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, he doesn't contemplate that. He's currently in what, his, the 15th year of the four-year term to which he was elected uh, in 2005. Um, it's hard to say what Palestinian politics will look like after him. We know what it, it, it's probably going to look like the way it is now, which is to say there is, as I say, a Palestinian consensus in favor of continuing this empty, foolish, uh, century-long war against Zionism, which has led nowhere. Um, there isn't anybody within Palestinian politics who's been able to present an alternative to that dead-end kind of thinking. Um, you know, the most popular person to replace him is somebody who's sitting in an Israeli jail for murdering people during the Second Intifada. Um, it, it's, it's a, the Palestinian political culture is gonna have to change. Now, perhaps over time, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, I'm a pessimist in the short term, but optimist in the long term. Um, the, the thing about the Palestinians is that what has been brought, has been made very clear in recent years, and no more clear than this year when Trump's peace plan was announced, they are irrelevant. They have made themselves irrelevant, not just to Israelis who just don't trust them anymore, aren't willing to take any chances, but with the rest of the Arab world, which has grown tired of their intransigence and they're unwilling to you know, take anything, to, to compromise, to, to take a Palestinian state on any terms. I mean, they won't recognize the legitimacy of a Jewish state no matter where its borders are drawn. The Saudis know the, knows this. All the Arab world knows this, Egypt, Jordan, they're sick of it and they're not going to be drawn into this anymore. That's why they didn't oppose the Trump peace plan with any fervor. That's why they're all looking to Israel as an ally against Iran, not as somebody as an enemy. Um, the Palestinians have cut themselves out of history and if they're going to get back into it, they're gonna to have to change. 
Um, there's no sign, however, that they're willing to do that yet. And that's a tragedy for them, uh, for Israel and for the, for the Middle East in general. Okay, well, uh, we are reaching the close of our time, but here's one last question. Are Lieberman's Russian supporters still behind him after he agreed to political cooperation with the joint Arab list? What does anyone think, well, why does anyone think that any land for peace deal will last or any peace deal with the Palestinians? Well, that's an excellent question. And we won't know the answer to that question until there is another election. Um, he took, and that's why he's probably very interested in not having a fourth election uh, this, this later this year, because there's a good chance that his supporters who have, who backed his play against Netanyahu because they are mostly going to be Russian immigrants. There are a million and a half Russian speakers in Israel. They are mostly secular. They're sick of the Haredi parties having so much power. Um, and they backed him because, you know, he was aggressively support, you know, uh, promoting the agenda of secular Israelis and assumed that, you know, that, that his nationalist agenda, his, his, his attitudes to the towards the Palestinians, which they support and which is identical to that of Netanyahu, but that wasn't going to be an issue. I don't think they anticipated, and certainly he promised that he would not be part of a government that the Arab parties were part of. Um, there may be some very serious consequences for, for Lieberman uh, when that happens, but you know, who knows when the next election will be. For now, he's got his seats, he's going to use them, but he too may have cut himself out of power uh, because of this, you know, blue and white and Likud may eventually make a deal that cuts him out. We've talked of him as the kingmaker for a year. He may wind up uh, to be not the kingmaker and no longer in the cabinet at all after the dust settles. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to enlighten us on all this. Um, we have come to the close of our webinar. There will be a short survey to fill out at the end to help us better serve you going forward. We will also be sending out an invitation to our upcoming events on a webinar on Monday with Greg Roman and a weekly webinar series with the Middle East Forum's Israel Office Advisor, Mr. Ashley Perry, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you again for joining us and have a wonderful day. Thank you.